morning and late Merry Christmas to you, Impactors. I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas. I know that it's a rough time for some people, but hopefully Merry for most people. And we are diving right back where we left off into our Luke series. Turn in your Bibles, our Rx series, to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Rx is prescriptions, and these are God's prescriptions throughout the whole Gospel of Luke for abundant living. Jesus didn't just come to bring life, he came to bring life so that we'd live it overflowing and abundant, not just breathe in air and exhale and eat food and exist, but to really live life to the fullest. And the prescriptions for how you can have that kind of life are right there in this gospel, if you'll pay attention, if you'll heed them. To start today, I want us to take a look at something in our culture that is extremely rare in our society. Take a look. The entire 737 bar the tail section has disappeared. Joe and Nikki have made it to this island of wreckage, along with four other survivors. One is the young mother, Priscilla Tarado. Another is flight attendant Kelly Duncan. The water is just one degree above freezing. The human body can only survive in these conditions for about 30 minutes. It hurts to be that cold. It feels like knives in you to be that cold. The emergency services arrive minutes later but their inflatable boats can't get through the ice. The survivors have escaped a plane crash. But now, they'll freeze to death unless rescuers reach them within minutes. 28-year-old Lenny Skutnik arrives at the crash scene. Lenny spotted the commotion while driving home from his office job in the center of Washington. He's unnerved by what he finds. When he got down on the riverbank, it was um, kind of an eerie feeling. It was snowing, and you know, that, that quiet when it snows, and someone screaming for help out in the, the river. Made the hair stand up in the back of your head. Their limbs are numb. They can no longer move their hands. They're giving up hope. And then they hear Eagle One approaching. I suddenly felt the whomp, whomp of a helicopter. Then the Park Police helicopter came into view. The relief I felt at that point uh, is unimaginable. Don and Jean now try to speed up the rescue by dropping two ropes. Joe Stiley grabs one of them and wraps an arm around Priscilla Tarado, the other. Seconds later, Joe loses hold of Priscilla. I didn't realize it at the time, but all the fingers in my left hand were already broken, and my arm was broken. Eagle One drags Joe to safety. Priscilla is their immediate priority. After 30 minutes in the freezing water, her chances of survival are on a knife edge. Lenny Skutnik is horrified as he watches from the shoreline. She was close enough where you could see the expression on her face. And her eyes just looked wild and she looked like she was going into shock then. Time and again, Priscilla slips from the life ring. Traumatized, exhausted, and temporarily blinded by aviation fuel, she begins to drown. Lenny realizes he can watch no more. It was just too much to take. I absolutely thought she was gonna die if I didn't go in and get her. She jumps into the freezing water and drags Priscilla to safety. I believe it's a human instinct. I didn't weigh it or think about it, I just did it. Seventy-four passengers and crew on board the 737 are dead. Five people survived the tragedy. But only just. That's a tough thing to watch, isn't it? I have a question for you. What makes for a Lenny Skutnik? 
how do, you, how do you get a guy like that? How do you get a guy like that in the right place at the right time? What actually makes for a good Samaritan? So that's what we're going to talk about, and that's what Jesus said we should be, but it's rare. And we can talk about it and admire it, but very, very few people will actually be it. I mean, one of the things that Lenny said that I completely disagree with, you're going, is that bad? Disagree with the hero? I, I do disagree with him on this. He said, it's just human nature to want to get involved and help. No, Lenny, it's not. It's not. It's human sinful nature to walk on by and let people perish. That's what's human nature. There's something like the image of God in us when we get involved, where there may be risk or where we may get in trouble or where infinite amount of things could go wrong. We live in an age, gang, when a tragedy happens, somebody's in pain, someone's in a car wreck, or, or worse, somebody's being abused or, or attacked or beaten, where we will tweet the human tragedy Oh, look, what I saw today. We will film the human tragedy. We will blog about the human tragedy. We will rubberneck over the human tragedy. Raise your hand if you know what that is. Keep your hand up if you've done it. Liars, we all do it. You do it on the freeway. This is why the freeway slows down. It doesn't matter what's on the side of the road. We slow down and do this, right? That's rubbernecking. We look back and we're just, we're just fascinated by this stuff. And we Facebook about human tragedy, but certainly... We don't live in an age where we intervene and help so much in human tragedy. It would almost appear the Good Samaritan has gone the way of the actual Samaritans. Samaritans were real people, and they were known uh, throughout the region by the Jewish people that lived there as not good, but bad. They said they were bad people. In fact, they said they were worse than their worst enemies because they were Jews only halfway. They, were, they had intermarried with their captors, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and had children that were half Jewish, half Babylonian, half uh, Assyrian, and so the Jews thought they were worse than an enemy, and they treated them bad, and they tried to be Jews and tried to worship the same God, but the Jews would have none of it. And so they said, only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan, and they said, your pig is worth more than a Samaritan is. And they used to pray to God that God would abuse and not forgive the Samaritans. I'm wondering, what kind of God are you praying to? Do you really think that God's going to answer that prayer? But that's how deeply infused this was. This is the rebels and the Yankees. This is the Hatfields and McCoys on steroids. This is any rivalry or any hatred that you could possibly think of. This is the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet this story is known, and we call it even today, 2,000 years later, the good Samaritan. It's like the good bad guy or the bad good guy. But everybody's going to switch places in this story. And we're going to learn what Jesus would have us do with our fellow man if we're really a Christ follower. What's worse is that most see nothing wrong today, I think the worst thing, with this policy of non-intervention. We talked about it a little bit last week, where people see nothing wrong with, in fact, they see it's politically correct to just not get involved in something that's not your business. Don't get involved in something that you don't agree with. Don't get involved with people that aren't like you. Don't get involved with races that aren't yours. Everything. Don't get involved with religions that aren't yours. Don't get involved with politics that aren't yours. And it makes for a very separated, isolated, ungodly way to live life. All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus is teaching, and a lawyer stands up. By the way, if you stand up, in our culture, if one of you stood up and wanted to put me to the test right now as I was preaching, that's why we have greeters and bodyguards. We'd throw you out. This is not the right time for it. In, in, in Jesus' love, but we would. We'd usher you out because that's not the time for it. But if you stood up in that day to ask, that's actually a, a, a way to show ultimate respect. But the problem here is he's showing ultimate respect while asking a question of complete disrespect. It's a lie. I mean, he's trying to let the people around him think that he's great and very respectful and, and follows all the rules, but what he's about to do to Jesus is anything but respectful. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that Jesus keeps getting asked. And what's crazy about it is he's one of the religious leaders. A lawyer back then, an attorney back then, don't think of it like a lawyer now. These aren't people that know secular law. An attorney, a lawyer back then is somebody that was an expert in religious law. So he's just another religious leader, but specifically the law. He knows it frontwards and backwards. Now, being scholars of the Old Testament law, he saw Jesus, all of them did really, but especially these attorneys, as a threat to their way of life, as a threat to the rules and the regulation of Judaism. So this lawyer wants to test him. A better way to say this is, or a more accurate way is this lawyer wants to trap him. 
This lawyer wants to trap them. They all do. All the religious leaders want to catch Jesus in something that's so offensive that the people will be done with him. But they're never able to do it. It's not a smart idea to try to trap Jesus. It is like digging a pit, putting something over it, and forgetting where you put it. And then you walking in it. You will walk in it every time. Jesus never falls in the trap. You do. Don't try to trap Jesus. But they learn the hard way. So he's going to try and talk to him about Judaism and the law and hopefully get Jesus to say something that's going to trip him up. Once again, Jesus' response is going to seem like maybe he heard the question wrong. Do you notice that about Jesus? Sometimes Jesus is asked a question and it's it, like if Jesus is asked, who's the current Caesar of Rome? I don't know. And Jesus says, behold, the price of eggs in China is. And so you're going, what, is, what, what does that have to do with Caesar in Rome? I asked you this question. You're way often when Jesus answers a question, it seems like, did you not hear me right? That's in no way the answer to the question that I asked. But it absolutely is the best answer. It's not the case at all. Jesus would have answered this guy, I think, flat out and directly and, and, and with the simplest, most clear answer, had this guy just been humble and broken about the real state of his heart. You follow me on that? I mean, if this pious, arrogant attorney would have come to him and said, I'm not really sure where I'm going. Kind of like Nicodemus did. I, I, don't, I don't know about all this, and, and I'm the answer, man. I'm supposed to know. Can you help me? Do you really have inside information about eternal life? I want to know. I want to lock this down. I'm scared. Jesus loves that when our hearts are honest. But when you come to trap him like this, he's going to do whatever he has to do to get your heart right because it's useless to answer somebody when all they'll do is hear it in their brain. It's useless to answer somebody when they won't hear it in their heart. By the way, Christ followers, listen to this. That's not to imply that you should listen to only when I say that. You listen to the whole thing, but listen to this. Whenever the Lord seems to answer you, whenever he seems to answer, period, with a parable or you going through a long valley or some trial or some pain or some desert experience where you can't seem to hear God's voice, we sang a song of praise and worship where it says, I don't feel you anymore. When you go through a long period like that, why would God do that? If you go through something like that, other than a clear answer right off the bat, we have to accept that we probably didn't come to him with the right heart or that somehow we're misaligned. That we came to him with selfish motives or, or with something that is somehow contrary to his word or just not in tune with where he's asking us to go. We might even have a right thing to do, but it's the wrong time and he's trying to get us to go here and, and we come to him fervently asking to go here and he says, no, I'm gonna, I, I gotta push you over here. That's not where I want you to go. And if that's off, he's not going to answer us clearly with a yes and what we want right away. So most of us are trained that when we don't get an answer right away from God, we start thinking, what good is this? It doesn't work. He's not listening. But gang, let me tell you, God always answers prayer. All right. Raise your hand if you heard me say that just now. They're trying to kill me with the wires. All right. Let me see the hands. That's not all the hands. So let me say it again. God always answers prayer. Always. Somebody going, that's crazy, Pastor. I am sitting here living proof telling you he does not always answer my prayers. You have it wrong. He does always answer prayer. Sometimes it's no. Often it's no. Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes it's maybe. Sometimes it's yes, but he always answers. God does not sit up there and go, I didn't hear you. I'm not listening. No, 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 I can't hear you. God doesn't play those games. He always answers. We think because we don't get the answer we want that he's not answering. But then what are you making God when you do that? I put a coin in the vending machine. I didn't get a Coke. Oh, I see. Then he's a vending machine. I rubbed the lamp. The genie never came out. I see. Then he's a lamp. He's a genie. But don't you see how that's not going about it the right way? Now, how many of you have parents? How many of you ever had parents? Every hand should be up because otherwise you're an alien or you're beamed down here, you were hatched, or you have parents, all right? How many of you believe that when you ask your parents a question, they answer it? That's not everybody. That's like half. Well, well, the rest of you, you, you don't think so? You don't think your parents answer? They always answer. It may be wait. Have you never heard maybe from your parents? Raise your hand if you've ever heard maybe from your parents. Okay, they say Maybe. Have you ever heard kids? Have you ever heard no? 
Some of you are like, I, I'm not sure they have another answer. That's it. That's all I, I, I know they can say no. Have you ever heard yes? Five hands. Five hands. So you're telling me that your earthly parents seem to know how to say wait, maybe, no, yes, but God can only say yes to your prayers. To prove that he's there and he exists, he's only allowed to say yes. Think of how juvenile that is, and that's where this attorney is. He thinks, well, I, I know how this thing works. Let me help you with it. So whenever the Lord seems to answer with a parable, long valley, trials, pain, a desert experience, there's probably something that's not quite lined up. Since the Lord cares more than anything else about the state of our hearts, step one when we come to him in prayer will always be heart alignment. Let me say that again. Since God cares more about your heart and the state of your heart than anything else, then step one when you come to God will always be heart alignment. How many of you are familiar with the verse, ask anything in my name and I will grant it? Anybody familiar with that? I'm not trying to trick you. Some of you are going, maybe he said it a little wrong. No, there's a verse that says, ask anything in my name. Let me see who's going to be honest here. Raise your hand if that verse has ever frustrated you. Thank you. I mean, I'll raise my hand. When I, growing up, there's a lot of times I'm going, I just asked this, Lord. I tacked on the formula. I said in Jesus' name, you're bound. You have to listen. You cannot lie. You didn't do it. What gives? Well, do you know what that literally means? In Jesus' name. Do you know what that means? That means according to his will. It's exactly, truly according, lined up, Lord. Anything you ask lined up in my will, he'll do it. You guys are on the same page. So what happens when you go to God and you're not lined up in his will? And you start asking for things. We conclude that he's not listening. He doesn't care. It's just not lined up. You get that lined up and he'll say yes. You start doing what he wants. You start knowing the heart of God and spending time with him. And you'll get a lot more yeses according to his name. Rather than according to your will and whatever you want. So some people don't get involved, and that's what we're going to find out with this lawyer. He thinks he's got, he thinks he is a good neighbor. But some people say, well, I don't want to get involved because it's none of my business. I don't want to get involved because I just don't want to get involved. It's just extra hassle. I don't want to get involved because surely someone else will handle it who's better qualified. Here's a line I hear. Let the police do it. Let the experts do it. What would have happened to that lady in the freezing river if Lenny would have said, well, I'm, I'm not really certified in ice water rescue, all right? You know who's certified? A Labrador retriever. There's not a lot of them running around for that. So if he doesn't step forward and do that, she dies. If he makes excuses, she dies. They're not my people. They probably deserved it. I don't really know the details. They might be a bad person. All kinds of excuses. But Jesus sees something wrong with this. And so do I. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Which is a fair question to ask a lawyer, right? What's written in the law, lawyer? How do you read it? In other words, not just what's written there, but how are you interpreting this? Because it's some pretty simple stuff. Have you twisted it? Do you know it? Pretty straightforward. To this one who's a scholar of the law, who lived under the law, who walked in the law, Jesus answered according to the law. Couldn't have kept it more simple. Verse 27, and he answered... The law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He's got it nailed. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. He's right. This goes way back to the Pentateuch. He knows this stuff. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, I know some of you hear that and you go, but I thought it was just believe and you will live. And, I, and, I, and is he saying a work salvation? No, it's worse than that. Jesus is saying an impossible salvation here. He's asking the guy to do something he can't do. None of us can do this in our own strength. So he looks at him, he says, you think that's what you need to do? Yes. Then simply do that and you'll live. You have eternal life. Well, that guy would have known right away, well, there's been times in my life when I didn't love him that way. There's been times in my life when I didn't love my neighbor, but here he's gonna try one last thing to not look foolish and to try to get Jesus to look foolish. He seizes on the last part of that, your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is trying to set him up and make him fall in his own trap by saying, just love God with everything you've got mentally, physically, emotionally, with your heart, spiritually, all that, and your neighbor, at least as much as you love yourself. That might have panicked him a little bit. So he says, 
And who is my neighbor? Now, let me tell you what he's feeling right now. I guarantee you this guy who is well-respected in society and probably does nice things for his friends and his family and any other righteous person who's declared religious and righteous, but nobody else. And he fully expects Jesus to say, well, of course, take care of your family, love your family, love your friends, and be good to your brothers and sisters. But Jesus is about to blow them out of the water. He thinks he's about to look really good in this crowd, but he's about to look really bad. He's thinking to himself, I imagine. You mean fellow Republicans? Surely you mean that, right? You, are you talking about other white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? Because I'm, I'm okay with most of them. You mean just African-American? Because um, I'm okay with only Baptists, right? You mean Catholics? What about rednecks? How about yuppies? I mean, how far do we go with this? How far down the rabbit hole? And so he's thinking, I think I've got most of these groups covered. I should be okay with this. In fact, almost the polar opposite is what Jesus means. Jesus makes it real clear who God considers to be your neighbor here so that we can't possibly have any problem with it. To answer this arrogant snob's question, so I guess I just gave away what I think of him, Jesus had to tell a story. Why is he going to tell a story, gang? What did we say about stories? I'm, I'm broken, guys. That was seven minutes ago that he tells stories when hearts are over here and needs a little heart alignment, right? This guy's heart is way off. Let's tell a story and see if we can line it up. Because I don't know about you, but I respond. When somebody tells a story, like my grandfather used to tell stories all the time. I remember like all of them. I'm trying to forget some of them. I can't. I remember those things. But when somebody just tells me a set of facts or here's the law, I can't remember to save my life. You want me to prove it? I'll prove it to you. How many of you can drive? Raise your hand if you can drive. Right, you got your license? How hard was it to remember all that stuff? That stuff, there's nothing passionate. There's no stories about some of those dumb rules. You just gotta drive it into your skull. There's nothing emotional. There's no story. I'm still waiting for someone to, to write a wonderful children's book about a driving book. And I'm pretty sure it's not gonna happen, but maybe that would help people remember it. So to answer, he tells the story of a good Samaritan. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, this lawyer said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Gang, people that are legalistically centered, people that are, are, are into rules and regulations and trying to do works to please God, invariably try to compare themselves to others in order to justify themselves. That's a dead giveaway that you don't have somebody relating to God through the heart. When they say, can you give me the criteria? Would you give me a nice list? Give me something I can follow, and I'll try to stick with that as best I can. As long as I stick with it pretty good and can find a neighbor that's here, and another one that's here, I'm good. And, and not too many that are here above me, then I'll position myself probably pretty good for heaven. I know I've said this before, but I have yet to find a story that really says how we are better than this. Two campers got out of their tent and began to pour their morning coffee when suddenly one of them saw a grizzly charging down the hill into their camp. And look out, there's a grizzly, one of them said. Well, the other guy immediately dropped his cup and began to put on his tennis shoes which seemed a little bizarre because they only have moments here. If you think you can outrun that grizzly, you're crazy, the friend said. I don't have to outrun the grizzly. I just have to outrun you. This is what he said. And I know you guys have heard that, but think about it. He's saying, you know what? I don't have to shoot that high. That's way too high, but it's not that necessary. Show me the lowest bar. Show me the lowest hurdle I've got to clear. That's all I got to clear. And he's thinking, that grizzly is too fast, but you're not that fast. I've seen you. So while he's eating you, I will get away. But that's kind of how we treat everything. That's the way of the law. Religion says, God will accept me into heaven if I'm just better than the next guy. I just got to find a, a, a big enough pile of people that are worse than me. But that's not what the law declares. It says, whoever violates even one point breaks the whole entire law and is doomed and damned unless he receives the gift of eternal life, of salvation from the one who paid for his sins completely on the cross of Calvary. That's what it says. It's even what it says in the Old Testament. There'd have to be a sacrifice. And they were flawed animals looking forward to the one day that a perfect person, sinless, would come, Jesus, and, give, and end all sacrifice. It always pointed to that. That's what the law says. And this expert in the law completely misses that. So religious people call for a definition of terms in their attempts to muddy the clarity and simplicity of the gospel. I am amazed at how many people have trouble communicating the gospel. It is five-year-old easy. Five-year-old easy. When 51 people came to know Jesus last week in our Christmas Eve, even Christmas Eve services, and some of them were children. 
And time will tell who really meant it and who it sank in, but I'll bet you most of the kids were pretty real. Sometimes the adults muddy the waters a little bit, I've noticed. My son, he is very close to God. My daughter, she's very close to God. Both of them came to know the Lord very young. I remember people making comments about Nathan because he was four. There's actually some evidence that he was three, but even I argued with that. I tried to talk him out of it. The guy was preaching the gospel back to me when he's three and four years old. Daddy, don't you want me to be saved? I believe Jesus. Yeah, all right. We've got to go with this. But he get it because the gospel is very clear and very easy so that even a child, in fact, if you're not like a child, you can't understand it. But religious people, legalistic, rule-oriented people call for a definition. Give me the definition. What do you want, God? Give me the steps. Give me the list. What are they trying to do? Muddy the simplicity of the gospel up and the clarity of it. So Jesus replied. By the way, before I even say what he replied, let me say this. Not only are we ambassadors for Christ. If you're a Christ follower, then you're an ambassador. I mean, in some ways, you should say, America's not really my home. Heaven is. Now, as a believer, I'm on loan. I'm an ambassador to other Americans from my real home in heaven. An ambassador for Christ. But gang, you're also neighbors like Christ. Neighbors like Christ. Unless we find this confusing, Jesus will now define it absolutely as clear as he can that a five-year-old can get it. So listen, this thing's going to begin with who is my neighbor, but it doesn't end that way. It ends with, and keep this in mind as we keep going here, it ends with to whom do you and I prove ourselves a neighbor? Does that make sense? It's going to start with who's my neighbor, but it's got to end with to whom? Are you and I proving ourselves to be a good neighbor? So it's going to come full cycle. So he says, here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, this may be a story that he just came up with, or it may be true. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed. I want to show you guys something on this map. Got to get this. For one, you know, I've even had people say, well, it says that he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So you've got... You've got Jerusalem here. You've got Jericho over here, and anybody can see, well, that's north. It might be northeast, but it's north, so why does the Bible say he went down? The Bible says he went down because the vertical drop there, it's an elevation drop of like 2,000 feet. Literally, you got the mountains here, and when you go from the holy city that's really like Denver almost in that it's elevated, you go over this mountain range here, and then you start dropping down really steep. In fact, that's supposed to be a pretty fun bike ride if it wasn't so dangerous. Till this day, if you go to Israel and you tour, by the way, it's a fun bike ride one way. It's not so fun the other way. But if you were to tour today, they still tell you, you can drive that road, you can go on a tour bus, but don't take that road. Do not walk. Do not try to sightsee or do anything. There's not much to see anyway. It's still a dangerous road. It was called back then the bloody way. Due to the great number of thieves and roving gangs who waited to ambush foolish travelers. Foolish because you just, you don't walk that road alone. Think of the most dangerous road you've ever been on. This is like at night, traveling through with an American flag t-shirt, walking through downtown Baghdad, and waving another one and blowing a little bugle. Okay, this is a little bit worse than that, walking down the road, saying, please beat me, please rob me. Oh, and wearing a lot of bling on you. That would be about the same. So you'd be a foolish traveler to go there alone. Nevertheless, this guy does this. This being the case, why was this man traveling this road alone? Why was this guy traveling this road alone? You guys know? Why? We don't have time. Here's the answer. Because he's stupid. That's why. Why? Because he's, it's dumb. He shouldn't have been doing it. He's stupid. He was foolish. He was dumb. And you're not going to like this. But this is and was, listen, Jesus never tells a story that's just a story in and of itself. It always has a spiritual meaning. And this one's got as much as the parable of the sower. It's all over this thing. Who is this traveler? This is a picture of us. All of us. We do dumb things. We go down foolish roads. We try stupid things. Hey, snort this, smoke this, drink this. It's fun. And you do it and you have regrets. Do this, I dare you. And we have regrets. And waiting to ambush us in our foolishness and at our lowest point is the murderer that Jesus identifies always as Satan. So let's keep going. Leaving him half dead, 
So they beat him, and it's strange here that it said they left him half dead. Did somebody rate it? Did somebody put a little scale over him and go, he is half alive and half dead, right? Right in the middle. No, I think this, again, is a spiritual thing. He's beaten physically, but he's still alive. But for us physically, we're actually half dead when we get away from God because we may be alive physically and partying and think we're having a good time, but if we're away from God, we're dead spiritually. So we're half dead. And Jesus wants this guy to see this, so he keeps going. He's not getting it by now. 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by. Now, look at this. He didn't just pass by, but he passed by on the other side. I mean, doesn't even want anybody to think it. So if he's walking by, and the guy's right here, and he, you know, he's coming by, and, and he sees that guy off in the distance, he's going to walk all the way to the other side of the road in case anybody's up there looking and waiting and go, I have nothing to do with this. I don't know what's going on here. I don't even really see him. In fact, this, this goes down so straight. I've seen pictures of this, and I was there. And you can see sometimes four or five miles ahead, you can see what's going on. So there's another traveler that's going to come in a moment. And I'll bet you anything that he can see what's going on with the priest. We'll get to that in a moment. So he probably saw this guy laying there and had 20 minutes, maybe even an hour to think about it and never saw the guy move. And so when he gets there, he's already on the other side of the road. And by the way, this guy would not have been walking. He's rich. He's a priest. He's very, very wealthy. He would have been riding a donkey. He might have had a couple people with him, but he would have said, let's go to the other side. That's not our business. Now, before you get too down on this guy... He would have just come from Jerusalem, and now he's going home. He would have gone through the seven-day purification. He would have paid his money. And if he even touches somebody that might be dead, definitely unclean, he's got to go back to Jerusalem, take the journey back, take another seven days, find another priest, pay an exorbitant amount of money, and start over. And I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking the same thing. You still look at that guy, go, he still should have helped him. Yes, he should have. But he's not quite as cold and uncalculating as you think. He's a guy who said, I, maybe I'd like to, but I can't. I've got a lot of people counting on me. I've got a lot going on here. If I stop and do this, it'll affect a lot of other people, not just me. And that's probably what he's thinking. Whatever it is, he doesn't do the right thing. He passes by. Perhaps the priest looked at the man by the side of the road and thought, that lazy welfare dependent. He's got nobody to blame but himself for being there in the gutter. Why doesn't he just pull himself up by his bootstraps like I did? Is that how I feel? Is that how you feel? I mean, I wonder sometimes, do I see people laying in the street who've been beat up by the enemy? Maybe spiritually, maybe not so much physically. And think, serves them right. I know a little bit of the story, serves them right. I mean, as I'm reading through this, it, it's, a, it's a very convicting story. It's a very convicting story. That's probably God's judgment on them. Then I got to stop and think, well, based on that, shouldn't he have judged me a hundred times over? Maybe I shouldn't go there. Numbers 19, Genesis, Exodus, Viticus, Numbers. Numbers 19 tells us that if a priest touched a dead man, he'd be unclean, like I said, for seven days. So this isn't mad. They know this. They're well aware of it. Perhaps he's saying, I've got things to tend to. I really can't do this. Either way, the priest's heart is not in alignment with the God he claims to serve. It's not in alignment. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite came. That's like a junior priest. The Levites were from the tribe of Levi, and they were raised up to help the priest, to serve alongside them, to do the intern, sort of the grunt stuff. He wouldn't have been riding. He definitely would have been walking. He's not as wealthy. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side, too. It might have been easier for him to pass by. In fact, we need to look at what our actions do to affect others. Perhaps looking four or five miles down the road, he would have been able to see, hey, there's priest so-and-so. I know him. What's he doing? Wow, there's somebody laying there, but he's not even attending. In fact, he's way over there. Can't really see what's going on, but now I know when I get there, that's something I should not look at. Based on this religious leader of mine, this person that I follow, how he handled himself, I guess that covers me. I don't need to do the right thing. People are always looking. People are always watching. Gang, one of the ways that we'll make an impact for Jesus Christ at this church is to be a church full of good Samaritans, not these first two, not a church full of religious people. Man, we have plenty of that in this country, but a place full of good Samaritans, a church full of people who don't go through a mental ledger 
before helping someone in need. But instead, they jump right in no matter what the cost. In fact, they really don't think. They just see a need and go, need equals neighbor, I'm there. The Levites would have been more similar to a modern-day social worker. After a closer look than the priest, this Levite nevertheless still passed by without doing a thing to help. Maybe he was worried about a lot of things. Maybe he's worried that whoever beat this guy will come after him next because he's walking and he's vulnerable. Let me get out of here. Maybe he thought this guy laying here is just a decoy. Maybe they want me to, to not look and then they're just waiting. I don't know what he thought. The point is his heart was not aligned with God. So he continues going down further into the valley. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, a hated one, a half-breed, the ones the Jews despise. Now, every Jewish person, and there's not a single Samaritan listening to this story right now that Jesus is telling. There's a big crowd. Everybody there's a Jew. There might have been some Roman officials to make sure the crowd didn't get out of control. There's a lot of religious leaders. There are priests. There are zealots, Herodians, Levites. They're all there. Every one of them is on the edge of their dirt by now, wherever they're at, listening, going, wait, 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 wait. Did you just say a Samaritan's coming by? Okay, right now they don't like where this story is going. Nobody's helped this guy. Somebody's bound to help him. We're running out of people. This is the third guy. You're not going to go there, are you, Jesus? You're, you're not going to say the one that helps is, all right, let, let, of course he won't. Let's just listen. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Impossible, the Jews are thinking. They're not capable of compassion. They're not capable of anything. They're not even human. So although they were sworn enemies, the Samaritan had compassion on the Jew. Pull up that second map, if you would, real quick, Kennel. I want you, I'm going to zoom out a little bit, and I want you guys to see where Samaria is and to what extent the Jews hated the Samaritans. So we were looking mostly at this region before, uh, at this region before where you go down to Jericho. But a lot of times, the disciples and Jesus would travel from the Sea of Galilee, which is way up here, down to Jerusalem. They went back and forth. They were there for every Passover. There were a lot of things they did down here. Most of their ministry was up in here. So there are roads that'll go straight through Samaria here to Jerusalem. No Jew took those roads. No Jew took those roads. They would take an extra three days and take any road they could all the way around or come along the coast and go this way. But they would never go through Samaria because you can't go through there. They don't exist. They're not there. So even the way the maps are, even the way the roads are, they didn't even have many roads there because people wouldn't take it. So although they're sworn enemies, although they think the Samaritans are the most evil people on earth, the only one that has compassion is that one. Someone wisely said, I don't know who said this, I was trying to find out, but someone wisely said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all of our hostility. Did you hear that? If you could read the secret journals of the people you hate the most, we would see them going through enough sorrow and enough pain to where we would go, wow, I, I'll, I'll back off. I didn't know. Do we really think our enemies are just living charmed lives and they don't go through anything? I love that. Who is this Samaritan? Remember what I said, there's always a religious meaning that goes beyond the other meaning. It is the one who knew no sin but who became sin. It, it's Jesus in the story. He came to you and me who have been beaten up because of our sin and stupidity and he had compassion on us. And he wants this guy to know this. You're not just asking a normal person, you're asking God. You ever notice how understandable, explainable, and even downright acceptable our own sin is? Have you ever noticed that? Oh, well, I may have done that. Did you lie? I might have, but here's why I did it and here's why it's okay. But that guy's a liar. Liar? Didn't you just lie? Yes, but it's, let me explain again. Why my lies are, you ever notice how our own sin is explainable, understandable, even condonable and acceptable, but others is atrocious, it's preposterous. But if we're to be representatives of Jesus to this world, that, that can't be the case. Jesus has compassion on everyone. Today, churches are filled with self-righteous. They're, they're vying to be elevated in God's eyes by appearing holier than thou. If I can appear holier than thou, then God will see me and not thou. God will see me and not you. That's all I have to do. 
If I want God's favor, just be a little more elevated and noticeable than everybody else. Verse 34, he went to him and bound him up, bound his wounds up, poured on him oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan's not foolish. He's not traveling on foot. He's traveling by donkey, by horse. So he can get away if there are people down there. Jesus comes and gives oil and wine, unless you're a Baptist. Then it's oil and grape juice. That's what this is saying. Then he gives oil and wine to the, to the wounds and to the healing like this guy is. But what's the spiritual meaning beyond that? Oil is a symbol of blood. The spirit provides power for success. The blood provision for failure. The Samaritan elevated the traveler to the position he had previously had. He puts him up on a donkey. He makes big of him and light of himself. Just as Jesus became a son of man that we might become sons of God. Do you ever think about it this way? I will condescend, Jesus said, and wrap around myself human flesh. We just celebrated at Christmas. And I'll make myself low, even lower than the angels I created, so that I can bring these brothers and sisters home and elevate them up to a position of brothers and sisters in my family and sons of the living God. So he brought himself low and elevated us up. So guess where Jesus takes people who have been beat up? He takes them to an inn. But guess where Jesus takes people who have been beat up? Theoretically. Theoretically, he takes them to us, to fellow believers. Theoretically, he takes them to church. Because theoretically, the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners. And some of you go, it doesn't seem like that. That's because a lot of churches are a country club for saints. And you don't take hurting people who want to admit their sin and need help to a country club where everybody's trying not to be noticed with their flaws. You take them to a hospital where nobody goes and says, I'm not sick. Please don't think I'm sick. Now, when you go to a hospital, it's usually you're so sick that you don't even bother trying to. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the inn is in the story. Verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Let's end with this, because this is a curious thing. After carrying him into the inn, the, the Samaritan said to the innkeeper, here's money to take care of him. If you need more, I'll pay you when I return. So it's kind of a, a dilemma for the innkeeper. Two pieces of silver is, is significant. Some of your Bibles say two denarii. That's, that's an average day's wage, one denarii. So if the innkeeper figured the Samaritan wouldn't return, oh, he's not going to come back, then he could dump the traveler on the street and use the silver to remodel his inn. So I'm thinking, how'd you think of that? Don't ask questions. It's just something that he could have done. That's what a lot of us do. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, and guys, this is how pathetic it is. He doesn't say, the Samaritan. Notice what he says. The one who showed him mercy. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. The one who showed him mercy. Uh, I'm sorry, which one is that? Would that be the Levite? Would that be the priest or the Samaritan? I already told you, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say it. He can't say it. He cannot humanize a Samaritan. So he gets it in his head, but he still doesn't get it. There's no hard alignment that takes place here. All right, no more wasting time with that guy. Here's the three principles I hope we can pull out from this. I'm just going to give them to you because they're so plain and simple. I don't want to muddy the waters. Here they are. Number one, lack of love is often easy to justify, but it's never right. I mean, we just learned you can find a lot of reasons not to love people, tons of them. The list could go on and on, but it's just never right. Bottom line, never, ever right, ever. Number two, our neighbor is, ready for this? Anyone of any race, creed, religion, social background, who's in need. Anyone. And number three, love means acting to meet the person's need wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you go to school. Needy people are always close by. There's nobody here that can tell me, you know, I don't think there's a needy person in my entire life or any circle I travel in. They're there. Maybe you've isolated yourself so much you don't notice. They're there. There's no good reason for refusing to help. We've been blessed with so much by the Lord, with, with money, most of us with, with jobs. If it's a bad economy and we don't have one, we'll probably in this country be able to get another one. We've got resources. The poorest people in America are the richest in the world. 
are still richer than most of the world. We've got ability, we've got talents, brains, and what do we do with them? A lot of times, like this guy, we just use them in our own circle and for our own gain and to promote ourselves. Here's another thing the innkeeper could have done. Just what the money warranted. He could have said, okay, that covers two days. I'm just going to cover this two days. And if you don't come back, then I'm, that's it. I'm dumping them. Now I'm not going to wait one minute longer. Then whether he's healed or not, he's out of here. I'm dumping them on the street. We do this too. I'll use what you've given me, Lord, but don't ask me to extend myself in faith. We're not going to take any new challenges or steps or any new opportunities. We're just going to keep cruising until you dump the lottery on us. And then I guess we'll know. Gang, I have never, ever met a person who became more generous because he got more stuff. I haven't met that person. Now, I have met more people that got more stuff and became more generous, but that's not the reason. You follow me? I mean, there's a lot of people that say, I would give if only God would bless me. If I had more stuff, but that's not how it works. God says, I'll bless you when you start giving. I'm looking for a heart alignment, and you've got it backwards. You're trying to get me to perform, but I don't have to perform for you. My heart is right. Yours isn't. We'll give what you require, but once that's given, that's it, because we're not completely sure you're coming back, Jesus, or that we're ever going to be repaid for all this. Jesus is coming back. His track record on honesty and follow-through is hovering currently at 100%. At 100%. There's less of a chance that the sun will come up tomorrow than that Jesus won't return. He's coming back. And I promise you that anything that you and I have spent above the two pence that we have been given will be rewarded greatly. Jesus cannot lie. Not once... In the next trillion or so years to come, we regret that we didn't spend enough on ourselves or do for ourselves because instead we cared for someone who was down and out or beat up or abused. Not, we will never regret that in heaven. Oh, if only I'd have bought something more for myself. I'd be happier before the Lord right now. On the other hand, what we absolutely will regret, and there will be a moment before the Lord like this, is that which we did not do or that which we did not give because we weren't really living like the Good Samaritan was ever coming back. We didn't really believe it in our heart. So God's given us more than enough to take care of the beat down and the down and out and the depressed and down. question is, what will we release that he's given to us? What will we give that he's given to us to steward, to use purely for helping others? Watch this. Last thing I'll say. Every one of us who have bent the knee to Jesus Christ, if you are a Christ follower, then you are the innkeeper in this story. Potentially, that's who you are. As such, we need to say to the Lord, to the, to the heavenly good Samaritan here, Lord, you've already given me gifts. I acknowledge that. You've given me talents. You've given me resources to care for whoever you send my way. Therefore, whatever it takes, Lord, knowing that you're even repaying me now in joy and peace and, and your spirit, I will do. Now, I don't like to give you challenges like that and then not give you anything. So here's my challenge to you. I was praying about this and saying, what can we do as a church? God, where's our, where can we find people who are needy that will knit with our hearts? And I was trying to put something on Facebook about having one service today so people wouldn't show up at nine. And pop comes a message from Pastor Renee Joseph. Do you guys remember him from Haiti? And he said, I've been praying, been praying for a long time. We need some more help with the orphanage. You know, some things have not come through that were supposed to come through, and they're just about finished, and now the kids are kind of suffering. And he said, Pastor Rob, God just put Impact Church. He just, you're the only church you put on my mind. There are others, but can you help? And I thought, how can I preach this tomorrow morning and say, no, but I hope you find someone. Maybe there's a priest down there, a Levite or somebody you could. No, that's us. So, Debbie, if you would come forward here. I've asked Debbie to bring a clipboard forward. Listen, here's what I want you to do. We're done, but I'm going to pass this through every aisle. And as you prepare your hearts to give back to God of your tithes and offerings, all I want you to do, if you are interested, this is called the, the Haiti information, Haiti interest list. 
then we are going to plan either for spring break or at the very latest early summer, we're going to take a trip down to Haiti. Many of you have already been with Loving Hands Ministry and Pastor Renee. It's a life-changing trip. Uh, it's the poorest group of people in the entire Western Hemisphere. They're still suffering greatly from the earthquake that happened. There's also a great spiritual hunger down there and the harvest potential is incredible. They need our help. They need good Samaritans. So it's one thing to preach about it and hear about it, but it's another thing to put our, our money and our talents and our resources where our mouth is, right? So this is not the only thing you can do, but it is an option. And by signing this and putting your phone number there, we're going to get a meeting together. I'm going to tell you some more details about it in the next week or two. In fact, one of our leaders of the trip, Stephen, is that you? Stephen, raise your hand real high. Wait. Stephen and Russ Snapper are going to be leading that trip. I'll probably be going too. Um, Pastor Renee has an incredible setup down there. He can take 30, 35, 40 people. But again, this just says, I'm interested. I want to know. I want to help. Now let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes and let's prepare our hearts to get back to God. Father, thank you for the, the 17, 18 weeks that we've existed as officially as a church from that grand opening on forward, Lord. We're so excited about how you're moving and what you're doing, God. Now as we really come into our own, Father, and really look more and more like you and, and dig into our vision, make it clear, make it compelling, Lord, and help us to be more of a movement than a church. I pray for many, many people to join us in 2014, Lord. I pray that our trips uh, to Haiti will just grow and, and get bigger. I pray that we'll minister to the lost and the needy and the down and out and the downtrodden right here in our own Judea and Jerusalem, Lord. And I pray that all of the talents and the resources you've given to us, that we will constantly be a conduit, that we won't be just be a pond that traps it and gets stagnant, Lord, but we will flow through and just keep giving it back to your ministry and funneling it through and do great things for you. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.